0: Hello, I'm your host, Ian Gibbs, and welcome to the LearnAbility Podcast. Think back to your school days. Were they happy ones? Was it a good school? If you could become headmaster of that school now, what changes would you make to make it a better place? This might seem like a hypothetical question, but that's not the case for our guest today. Duncan Giles, as of the beginning of this year, is executive head of Kensington School, the British school here in Barcelona, and it's also the school that he attended as a small boy. So, how do you make sure that the school of today is providing the best service possible and the best education it can for its students? Here to answer those questions. A big round of applause for Duncan Giles. Welcome, Duncan. Thank
1: you, Ian. Thank you for having me.
0: To get started, could you tell us a little bit about your educational journey?
1: Sure. Um, I think it's you know, not uncommon to, uh, to, to, to many students you know, at that 16, 17 year age. There is an element of not being entirely certain into which direction you, you want to go. And I, I left school with my A-levels and I I thought a, a degree in, in politics with economics was a, a broad enough canvas with which to potentially move into uh, a number of fields. But you know, I think in reality, I think education was always the pull. And what I found once coming towards my, my graduation was that I was having difficulty uh, getting onto PGC courses to to study history, which was always my would have been my preferred choice. So I thought, well, there's nothing for it. I, I, I've got to find something in between my undergraduates and my PGC. So I did a an MA in history at Bristol, which satisfied admission departments at Reading to let me do their their history PGC, and then very swiftly after that, you know, began the the Chosen career in teaching, which, which clearly was what I always should have done, and should have made that decision sooner. But it's tough; it's very tough for young, you know, young minds, you know, to choose at that early age careers and choices which will have an impact as they as they progress.
0: One key point that I think you very diplomatically skipped is that the school that you went to uh, was Kensington. Wasn't it? Yes, yes, it right. was. Which is actually your family school. It's the school that your father founded here in Barcelona. Is that right? Yes, he
1: set this up. I think in a very
0: different Spain to the one we we inhabit now. In the
1: in the mid sixties, offering what at the time was was you know there weren't many schools like like ours offering a a pure British curriculum. Uh, so yes, myself and and my brothers before me. Uh we all went through the school, and people often think that well of course you wanted to be a teacher, your father was a teacher, so of course and I think that wasn't the case, but I think certainly that albeit linked in amongst all the other decisions uh an eighteen year old makes was probably probably an influencing factor
0: so your your father was a teacher then uh the of reason- was
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, I think
0: speaking to contemporaries of his
1: you know or over the years and certainly people who, teachers who taught at the school, Uh, they all, all of them are very consistent in their view that, no, no, what your father really enjoyed doing was teaching. You know, what he, what he didn't like so much was was people telling him what to do. So, so he, so he, he got around that by, by starting his, his own school. He's a very skilled teacher. He taught me maths. And when the school was struggling to, to find a French teacher, Took a hand at that, and and you know we all got A's and B's. So so no no, I think if you ever asked him to fill in an application form in a profession, you know, his his go
0: to answer would always be be teacher. That's impressive actually, because I, I don't know whether this is true for other parts of the world, but here in Spain, for instance, take my what my daughter does as an example. She does gymnastics. She has uh, an outside gymnastics class. And the people who run the gymnastics activities, they are ex-gymnasts. And they're probably... not not probably. They are definitely very good gymnasts. But they are terrible managers. Trying to get them to organise something like a a visit out to see a, a gymnast show is it's a disaster. And she also does horse riding classes. And again, the the lady who organized the horse riding classes, she's probably a great horse rider and a great horse riding instructor. But running the business, she's terrible. She, her accounts are a nightmare. She doesn't give receipts. She can't cope. She does, has no record of who's paid what and, and how to organize. She's terrible. And so to get a teacher... Your father, when obviously in his early days, not only was he a good teacher, but also he was sufficiently good a businessman to be able to set up a successful school here in Barcelona, which I think is fantastic.
1: Well, they always say, surround yourself by you know people who who do things better than you. Why? Why the schools full of people who are better than me? (laughs) Um, But no, I, I agree. I agree, that was a fortuitous and uh, I think the competition at the time would, would have been less um, but yes, no, I, think, I think he was astute enough to not only see a, a very obvious business opportunity but also to, to see it through and, and allow it and be a key part in its success and allowing it to thrive.
0: So, when it did start, mm-hmm. when you said that you and your brothers were there, how old were you at that time?
1: I, well, I, uh, well,
0: originally uh, the school was only a secondary school
1: when when my brothers were very small and then when they became five then obviously he thought well I best open a primary school as well now so all of us the the, the full stretch the the big 13 years five to 18 uh, as did I and every year we uh, and in, in this very changing world of not just of education, but of business and, and, and movement, which is now so easy for people to do with cheap airfares and, and very medium that we're using now, people's professional lives are a lot more fluid than they might have been 10, 15, 20 years ago. So it's it's becoming more hard, if you like, for students to join us at five and stay with us until they finish the sixth form. And every year at our at our celebration evening, we do make a, a significant bit of attention to those who have done the full stretch uh, with us. So no, I, I joined in J1 in, in, in at the age of five with uh, Miss Wendy, uh, who, who I was her first ever teaching cohort. And, and it's wonderful to know that Miss Wendy is still with us today. Is she? Uh, yes. Excellent. yes. I don't, she, I don't think she enjoys me telling the story as much as I do. <laughs> Because it's a very good telltale sign as, as, a, as a potential age, but um, yes, yeah, so no, no, it's, it's the,
0: the full stretch. So, just to point out to the listener, you are now, as of the beginning of this year, the executive head of Kensington School, the Brit- a British school in Barcelona. This is the this is the role that your father had when he set the school up. And really, history has gone full circle and you are now in that seat. So, could you briefly explain to the listener, what is Kensington School? I mean, obviously, we know it's a British school. But uh, as far as the ethics, the, the, the idea behind the school, the driving force, could you tell us a little bit about what the school entails?
1: Something rather special. And very easy for me to say it's sitting where I am but certainly in conversations with our parents, our current students, uh, former students who come back to visit and again as a very international school um, we've had students from pretty much you know pick a country and at one particular stage some of them have been here Uh, and obviously Barcelona is always an attractive pool city so people always want to come back when they're married and show their partners, you know, this is the school I went to. And I think the one common thread that weaves through all those conversations is its size and its very, very obvious warm family environment. And I think that does make the school just uh, sort of stand out against many others. Partly because it is family owned uh, as well. I think more so than that, our staff We've been very lucky to have them stay with us for a significant amount of time, which means that whenever someone comes back, there is always a familiar face. Our, our small class sizes, it's just a very intimate, family oriented environment with a bit of metal and steel because we are striving towards academic excellence. But that never comes at the cost of the personalized care that we offer students and our attention to detail to meet their needs, whatever they could be.
0: You're clearly doing something right. Because when you say that you strive towards academic excellence, I'm just going to quote something which is on your website, the school website. The success rate that you have says that you have approximately two-thirds Of the grades that your students get are A's, which is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I I go around schools talking about study techniques and how to learn better and how to become a good student. And you clearly, you're in no need of that surface because to be getting a a 66% grade A is amazing. What is your secret? Well I hope I find it up quickly because I, I, I want to
1: keep those numbers where they are. So, no, I I mean there is what is the secret? Um they're quite simple really. Our staff, you know, we have exceptional teachers. We we struggle to find them and we work jolly hard to keep them. And it is only thanks to them other things as well, of course, but you know, when you've got People who are at the top of their profession, who who deliver their craft with commitment and passion and enthusiasm, things are a lot easier. I think it's not only that, of course, but when you've got small class sizes, you know, you you do develop from quite early on in in our secondary school, which clearly is the build up towards the two examination sessions at the end of of the fifth form and, and the sixth form. Um, our teachers know intimately the strengths, the weaknesses of our students. You know, I spent time in the UK as a governor of a school there, and it's very noticeable how, how data-driven teaching has become in the UK. And, you know, there's all sorts of platforms and programs in order to plot and track and manage students' uh, attainment and their progress and so forth. It's all very good, and, and I'm sure that in a school of 1,100 plus, it's much needed But, you know, when you've only got one year seven, uh, not four groups of year seven, and in that year seven, you've only got 16 students, and there's only one teacher per subject, you're not sharing your class with the other maths teachers. You do develop a really strong and important understanding of the child in front of you. And, of course, you do have to teach to that particular child. So, uh, as you well know, schools will uh, develop you know, a differentiation policy or a, or a marking policy which will lay out the the expectations for, for those things to happen. We have them, of course, because we need to have them. But it is something which happens instinctively to us. If you're only marking 16 books of Year 7 geography, those books get the level of care and attention and insight and thought that each particular student deserves. So. In answer to your earlier question, you know, how do we do it? It's those teachers working with those numbers that over a period of time deliver students who are as prepared as they ever could be as they walk into that gym in order to sit their exam.
0: When you say small class size, you refer to 16 students per class. Is that, is that a sort of an average or that's, a maximum? That, that's an average. Um, I think if we look at key stage three Forms 1, 2, and 3,
1: or, or years 7, 8, and 9, we're looking at about 20 per class. And then as they move on into fourth and fifth form in their two-year GCSE course, thanks to our option block, those numbers do whittle down because they are given choices. And of course, some choices are more popular than others. So those numbers naturally reduce, and they reduce even more as they enter the sixth form. You know, we are also quite heavily staffed. So most subjects, even though we are a single form entry, will have two colleagues, two members of staff delivering that subject. So we can, if we feel there's there's an educational need to do so, we will find ways to timetable that class so that we will have two groups of 10
0: or or, or thereabouts. On your profile on LinkedIn, it Mm -hmm. says that you are the executive head. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that the same as being what in my days used to be headmaster?
1: Yes, I mean I, I might need to change that. Um, there is a there is a, a a history behind why that title exists. I was previous to coming here, I was the head teacher at uh, two British schools, one fairly similar to this, the other less so, uh, in Mallorca. We had a phenomenal head in post in Michael Bay's, uh, who was the headmaster, um, but I think he and I were were comfortable, how, how did we present to our wider uh, uh, community, our stakeholders, the, the differentiation between between the two posts. So he rightly retained the title of, of headmaster and dealt with the vast and all-important academic matters. And then as the executive head, I oversaw an element of that. But my remit, if you like, was more to do with the the business and administration side of things. Personnel, HR, all the things which were not inherently academic. Obviously, with his retirement, it might make sense to revert back to to the single title, or I might just keep the one I've got at the time.
0: I remember my school days. A head, the headmaster was basically the person that you had to go and see if you'd done something extremely bad. What does a headmaster do all day? Well, well,
1: an awful lot, an awful lot, Ian. Or at least that's what
0: we we work hard to make people
1: believe. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a very good question. I was I'm uh, completing my um I know you mentioned earlier on about you know, are we still or we should all be on a learning journey. Part of my learning journey that I set out for myself was to acquire my MPQH, which is the National Professional Qualification for Headship, which you do to to up your game and upskill. And it is very vast because it covers pretty much everything that will take place at the school from, from, if you teach, well, there's that to add to it, of course, but you you are working with your heads of department to ensure that the teaching across the school is outstanding. So there's, there's a management of your teaching team. There's a management of your senior leaders. There's your planning of your curriculum. And as we move on, there's always greater subjects that parents want their children to do. I think our size limits our curriculum somewhat, so we don't have that breadth that a larger school would have, and we're looking at ways to incorporating new subjects in, which then requires you to manage risk, and in which case it's a financial risk, because you need to bring extra staff, and I haven't even discussed, you know, the, you, know you may have work on your roof or we have work on our roof as well so you know quotes are required for that and they need to be approved and you've got to link that to your budget so there is a a very much a one size covers all where you've really got to have a some skill in a variety of fields not just necessarily those that link to to
0: teaching and learning. I'm interested to hear that you you say it's about preparing the curriculum Mm -hmm. because I understood that you're a british school and therefore you follow the british curriculum yes do i understand then that there's a certain amount of flexibility within that curriculum things that you can opt in opt out no i mean
1: you're absolutely right we we follow the national curriculum and there's very very clear set subjects which naturally we and all other schools i imagine would follow as you progress up the school when you when you're looking at GCSE's and A level choices, you know, there's there's limitless. You, know, you if you go onto any of the exam board you know, websites, the amount of subjects you can do at A level it is never ending. Similarly with GCSE exam. We've always had a very traditional curriculum, but you will always have parents who will ask, Well, you know, do you do psychology A level? Well, no, no, we don't. Well, do you do media studies? Well, no, no, we don't no obligation to do media studies but I think other schools with greater resources or larger numbers will will spread their curriculum you know, fairly thinly we concentrate on subjects that we have a, a track record of, of delivering excellent results in which play to our strengths play to our numbers play to our financial situation but moving forward you know my job is to look at what we offer and find are there gaps based on student interest, based on parental requests, that could fit into our provision at post-16 and at at GCSE as well. For example, business business studies a very popular subject. Uh, We don't offer business studies at the school, Um, but now I'm looking to to September. Uh, Is there a a possibility of bringing in a, a subject that students can choose at GCSE and then progress to do uh, at A level, but as before, that, that that comes at a cost because you need a business studies teacher. You've got to find an extra room in which to teach this classroom, uh to teach this class. Uh, so all of those things need to be weighed up as you plan your curriculum. Certainly, the examination curriculum for for years
0: to come. We've already established you've only had a, a, a few weeks in your position as uh, head of Kensington, but you did—you said t- you've worked as head in a couple of other schools in Majorca. Yes. Yeah. So, could you give a couple of examples of some of the biggest headaches that you've had to solve as head?
1: Yes, I think I can actually. I think certainly in my first school there, um, and I think you—we we touched on earlier, you know, what makes this school special? Why do we do it? what do we do? And I think one of the, the the answers I gave was that this is a family-owned school. And I think, and that's changing in Spain. Um, a lot of these schools were set up in the late 70s, early 80s, some like ourselves, in, in the late 60s even. And they were, on the whole, older heads predominantly. Uh, especially on on the south coast of the Costas. And as owner heads retire, unless there is a a second generation, you know, a a Malaga version of me, if you like, coming through, often these schools are sold on. And they are very much now being sold on to large groups of schools who will have a, a portfolio of schools, Spain and, and, and further afield, there's there's a very, you know, household names who dedicate themselves to acquiring British schools, and the school, the first school I worked at there, uh, was, was part of a group, and I think the challenge there, certainly for me, was that you were not dealing with an owner, you were dealing with a group, and that group has group needs, which in some cases may be greater than your school needs. And I think for me the the greatest challenge and in the years I was there was that you would have to present your needs and be very, very aware that a decision A would be delayed because you'd be speaking to your director of schools or your regional director who would then go to a board meeting and it would go so there's a Various layers before a decision would come back to you. And then that decision would be taken in the context of, well, yes, this may be very good for your school, but this may not be good for our group of schools. So that level of standardization was was, a, was a, certainly a learning curve
0: for me. The bureaucracy of the situation then?
1: The bureaucracy of the situation and the need to understand that decisions, whilst make absolute sense for your school in Mallorca may make no sense for the school in Moscow. And therefore, that your decision will not go your way because we are looking at the group of schools and not at individuals.
0: Now, I'm going to pick you up on that in a moment, Duncan, about what it is that's good for a school and what is good for a different school. But in the meantime, I think we're coming up. In fact, as I'm saying now, I can see the counter getting down. It's time for the... You hear that noise? (laughs) That tells us that it's time for the Learnability Quiz, which are three questions on your specialized subject. So let's just take a break for the moment. Three questions to see how much you have your finger on the button. Question number one. I hope this is going to be an easy one for you, but, well, you never know. As you said, your father founded Kensington School, one of the first British schools in Barcelona at its time. Can you tell me what year was the school founded?
1: Come along! I mean, you know, you've got to, you've got to have some sort of of challenge here. (laughs) Uh, It's on our school
0: Um, (laughs) logo. Nineteen (laughs) sixty-six. Correct for ten points. Right, excellent. This isn't part of the quiz, actually. But why Why do you think your father chose the name Kensington?
1: Oh, I know why he chose that. Um, he he spent time living there in South Kensington in London. And at the time, a lot of schools here were, were St. This and St. That. And he thought, no, no, let's have a nice, strong English name. That was his attachment to it. Right. Um, I mean, he could have been living in Hackney. But yeah, that, that, that's where the name comes from.
0: The reason that I ask is because question two is actually about the Royal Borough of Kensington. Right. And I'm sure you're aware of this, but if our listener went to Kensington and started wandering around, they would occasionally come across little blue circular plaques on the front of some of the houses. This is because in Kensington, they have this tradition of remembering some of the more famous people that have lived there. And so my question is, can you name anybody? There's this I think there's hundred and eighty-two plaques in Kensington. Do you know the names of any of the famous people who have lived in Kensington?
1: Well, I fear these 10 points are gonna be harder to come by than my previous. Um, mm-hmm. Pass, in <laughs> I mean I I mean I could <laughs> I could pick a
0: name out, but I'm not going to gamble on that one. No, not at all, none. Okay. You may be surprised to know that people like Winston Churchill, Alfred Hitchcock, Alexander Fleming, T.S. Eliot, Tony Hancock, Jerome K. Jerome, even Bram Stoker and Oscar Wilde have all got their little plaques in Kensington. It really is uh, a, an impressive collection of f- uh, famous people there. Right? I'm not quite sure, lo- sure how long you have to have actually lived there to get the plaque, whether you just stayed in, in a in a hotel for a couple of days and they say, well, you know, Winston Churchill stayed here.
1: I think i have to stop just looking at my
0: shoes as I walk along the streets. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. And then finally, we have question number three. On your website, it points out that Kensington is one of the oldest British schools in Spain. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't lay claim to being the oldest British schooling in in Spain, because that goes to a different school. Mm -hmm. Do you know what is the oldest British school on the Spanish peninsula? Ah,
1: Spanish Peninsula. Well, I mean, I, I could have a few guesses here. Um, mm-hmm. Swans springs to mind. Uh, the British Council School in
0: Madrid. Probably be a, a safe bet. Uh, I'm not going to touch you anymore. You're bang on. Am I? Yes. Yep. Yeah. I'll give you full points for that. Founded in, do you want to have a stab at the year? 54, 52. Ooh, no. Much earlier. 47. 40. 1940. 1940, founded in Madrid, the British Council School was the only one of its type when it began. It odd time to open a school middle of the
1: war, a bigger British school in Madrid in 1940, and in Franco's Spain. But
0: that's right. I'm not saying that this is necessarily the gospel truth, but this is, no, no, the, no. Information, this is sure the information. This is the information that I've found on the internet. No, no, I wouldn't doubt that at all. Okay. So, 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 well done. Congratulations for knowing that. I'm impressed with that. Um, the, so, let's get, get back to what, for me, is one of the most important questions in education, which is what is the reason for being for schools what is the objective and why is it that as you pointed out what's good for one school isn't necessarily good for other schools and surely if we're all in the same boat and we all have the same objective then it should be fairly obvious what's good for everybody so what's your personal take on this duncan
1: yeah i mean that's a very in vogue topic of conversation and i think you know one of the the lessons learned from our our current situation with our global pandemic is that the that education has been very much a a conversation topic with significant changes uh, as a result of of enforced closures and the move towards online learning so that's brought in a a whole new raft of questions and considerations as to where education is going similarly you know, new schools are opening with almost bespoke curriculums and very innovative teaching styles, and you know. So there's always a a debate on education. I think there always has been. You know, certainly in the UK, with with every change of education secretary, we have a new uh, move or new direction in which to go in. I think to to limit it, i If we look at our our current model, not the schools, certainly uh, across. Across uh, British schools, there is still this sort of—it does feel like it's a, a journey that ends in a in a hall doing an exam in June, and then maybe going on and doing another exam two years later when you finish the sixth form, and that is still the 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 core purpose. And whilst the journey you take to get there will vary, and teaching methodologies and broadening curriculums and enhancing students' experiences and allowing them to, to discover and find you know, new ways of learning, be it a forest school, be it more interactive. All of those things are true and valid and are in place. But our system still works towards examination results because they are still the the passport to uh, higher education and and presumably game for the product. All schools now are very mindful that you know you cannot we cannot be just a, a conveyor leading towards an exam result. And I think there have been strides in order to make the the years between school entry and school
0: exit as enriching as possible. One of the things that I think is becoming more and more common now is that by the time students leave school the world that they will be facing will have moved on substantially from where it is now and i, I know i even just take my next door neighbors as an example there's a, a, a guy who lives down the road he's got his own drone school uh, he teaches people how to use drones. The the woman who, who lives next door here, she's the, uh, oh, I can never get it right, sustainability manager for her company. And the thing that, that these two people have in common is that their jobs didn't exist when they left school. And this idea that one of the most important things that students can do is to learn how to continue learning to continue developing and growing and that it's not just getting a certificate that counts it's not jumping through hoops until you can get a piece of paper and so how do you see education developing in the future yeah I mean it's that
1: it's, it is a, a huge question uh, and it's the right question um, and you're absolutely right you know a child in, in year four uh, who's you know eight nine, no idea what his job will be. And as I say, his job you know, doesn't exist because we don't know what's going to happen in 10, 12, 15 years. So it's very difficult to work without a, a reasonable prediction as to what's out there in, in the future. Uh, so how do, you, how do you incorporate that? Well, with difficulty and, and, and with, with imagination. And schools are opening, which are trying to, to factor that uncertainty in. and their method of, of instruction is is very much geared around you know the, the acquisition of skills, the enterprise element to it, you know using technology as a key instrument of to learning in an, in an attempt to, to build up uh, a skill set towards that uncertainty. And if you are opening a school now, I think you'd be well advised to look into that variation of what a school can do. But I think you also, um, you also have to deliver or meet sort of people's expectations of what you want them to do. And, you know, I sit at my desk and I hear and, and previously, and there is a long, you know, steady stream of prospective parents coming in. And uh, they all ask a variety of questions because they all come from a variety of different countries. And whilst, you know, you pick up specialist publications and you, you know, read the test, and there is this clear momentum towards this uncertain future. Certainly in, in the nine, ten years that we did it, I, that is not necessarily consistent with the conversations I'm having with with prospective parents. I do believe that there is still this, this sort of desire, if you like, for your core basics at these formative years. You know, I I give an example often. You know, we had a Swedish family, and quite surprised that that you know she was very keen to ask us about technology in the classroom. Do they all have a laptop? Do they all have a Chromebook? Do they all you know? Clearly, she wanted the answer to be yes. Uh, and I said, Well, you know, well, they do. We we have this bank here and, and they use them occasionally. Occasionally, I said, Oh well yeah. Um I said, look, you know, understand that whether the system is to our liking, whether we have the ability to impact change and, and you do, the system still works the way it has done for the last thirty, forty years, you know. British education has a, uh, a worldwide reputation. The A-levels are still the gold standard for university entry because it's a, it's a tried and tested method that people like. Um, okay, okay, he said. Um, and whether we like it or not, the end result of your career at a British school ends with an examination uh, taking place. And that examination, for better or worse, still relies on a student being able to sit at a desk and write non-stop for an hour coming close to two. And if we use our our day-to-day teaching time via a computer and our students type and submit their work on any of the many educational platforms that exist, they're going to struggle writing for two hours in a, in a gym. Ah, ah. So, so we, we mix them. Of course they've got to be familiar with this. But it's, it's such a big conversation, PC, because it requires a almost a complete rethinking of education and what schools do. It requires a retraining of teachers to deliver content, either different content, all their current content in a different way. And I think that's the second part it's always going to be the easiest, and that's what we are successful at. How you prepare students or children for a future we we don't yet know? Well, that's, that's a a question which I would be, be difficult and probably foolish to, to give you a, a confident-sounding answer. I think, if in doubt, just do what the Americans do. It's, it's very hard. It's, it's a very hard question to answer because there is no... Correct answer because no one knows what's going
0: to be the answer. So I'm just going to pull you up on that, Duncan. When you say "do what the Americans do," what what do the Americans do?
1: Well, I mean, I I to well, be very careful when you say you know off the cuff remarks <laughs> because they they're not always off the cuff, are they? Um, no, but I think if you if you read and uh, you know look at the Southern California and Caltech and and all the innovative schools that are opening up there. Vastly funded by tech companies themselves. They are looking at a complete, you know, separation of of our curriculum. And they are teaching skills and less content. You know, I think if you ask, you know, a a year 10 student, you know, why do we need to learn about, you know, the French Revolution? What use is that going to give me as I grow older? Well, it's. That's a tough question to answer from a from a bright, you know, 13-year-old. But, of course, as a historian, um, you know, the ability to analyze and interpret information, regardless of what historical period you may be studying, is the skill that you are teaching. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's the French Revolution or the origins of, of the First World War. It's the ability to, to it's the analysis, it's the, the comprehension, it's the being able to articulate Uh, a well-thought-through argument in coherent and and acceptable format. That's what we're teaching. Whether that's still relevant in in 20 years' time, I would have thought so. It'd be odd odd that the world doesn't need those things uh, in 20 years' time, regardless of what field you you, you may be in.
0: While we're on, on the subject of things that are going to be happening in 20 years' time, and you've, you've already mentioned uh, about how technology is, is starting to influence the way that schools are run. Are you familiar with Sal Khan and his work with the inverted classroom? Remind me, I have heard about it, but I'm going to allow you to refresh my memory. The concept of the inverted classroom is that classes, uh, or, or to be more exact, short explanations of concepts whether it's mathematics or science or or engineering whatever are recorded on video and the homework for the students is to go away and look at the explanation on video And and I think one of the arguments is that the students can look at this video as many times as they wish in order to understand it and absorb. And then in the classroom, instead of listening to the explanation, which they should have already done, then the classroom is reserved for dealing with questions and looking at how that knowledge can be used to solve Uh, Problems, uh, which is the sort of activity that is usually given to students for homework. The normal classes, we're here now, the teacher gives the explanation and then they go home and try and do problems, solve problems. And the inverted classroom is the opposite way around. Uh, At home, they uh, absorb and acquire that knowledge or research. And in the classroom, you is reserved for discussion problem-solving, and addressing things that they don't understand? Mm-hmm.
1: Sure. I mean, again, I mean, I think one of the, the biggest differences and when we have international parents coming along and asking about British education, in some cases they've never been to it. You know, they do ask about the, the methodology of teaching. And, of course, what you've just described is, is what happens in our classrooms anyway, you know, Number of countries, you know, the the method of teaching is still very much I talk, you listen, you go home and do some work. If you came to our school, and I think many schools like ours, you know, if you walk into our classroom, they are very much uh, uh, a forum for debate and discussion. Even from from you know from what um, homework, the homework we set is to consolidate the learning that has taken place in the classroom. Of course, that learning takes place not just by the delivery from the teacher, but from the interaction between the student and the teacher. And the best resource in any school are its staff, uh, and therefore we want to make sure that as much interaction takes place between teachers and, and, and students in their allocated time. And that's what we did quite successfully. The, and of, of course I've heard of, of the different methods of recording things, but... Again, there is always, in me in any case, uh, a little bit of healthy scepticism with all of this because it's all very time-consuming. It's all very time-consuming. You are reliant on everything working correctly. Of course, it's a teething period where you set it all up and after a period of time it becomes second nature. But that does require a lot of of teacher buy-in. And teachers, for better or worse, are creatures of habit and have become accustomed, and very comfortable, and very confident in what they do and what they do well. That are uh, uh, bringing in new innovations, which, unless they are successfully explained and very gradually brought in, can at times, are not mentioning something particular, can appear and maybe gimmicky is not the right word, but does dilute the the core purpose of teacher and student interacting face-to-face. Nonetheless, uh, as we learned through through COVID, the use of recordings has been invaluable throughout our lockdown periods and and uh, schools would not have been able to succeed and thrive and students do well had it not been for very quick and agile uh, movement from what we know, standing in front of the classroom, to recording and delivering things online. So again, like like any teaching practice, you know, you always I think you always look for for a happy medium and equilibrium, a blend of the two, uh, to enhance learning, not just to to deliberate uh, wholesale.
0: The, the idea of equilibrium, and you you mentioned before the issue of stakeholders. It always strikes me that schools you have to keep the teachers happy you have to keep the students happy you have to keep the board of directors happy you have to keep the the parents happy and the the people in the the education department as well presumably would like to be happy as well as people tend to be a problem then it all sounds like almost an, an, a nightmare balancing act is is it a fair comment to say that that? It is a, a, a very difficult balancing act with all the stakeholders. Yes. Yes it is.
1: Um, not quite difficult, not impossible. I think I think you did a very stepped approach. I think the your first step is, you know, is this beneficial to the child? You know, that's always going to be your, your, your opening gap. And then once from there then you consider it. But you know, that's that's the first thing you, you need to do. Once you've established that, then trust comes in. And you know, I think this school, not me, but I think we talk about the ethos, this is a school that inherently trusts its stuff. And any decision, anything is, is, is always done knowing that the head of history, the head of science, their judgment on what they believe is in the child's best interests is as important and as valuable as mine, and that trust is, is, is from the other direction. Parents need to trust that we know, what we believe, what is in the very best interest for a child. Um, and if you work on those two premises, of course, you know, some people may not like the school uniform, or they may not like WLF, that's a whole different uh, issue, school lunches and whatnot. But certainly from an academic point of view, if there is trust, uh, from the school to those delivering lessons, if there's trust from parents in us and there's open communication and transparency and all the nice things that, that go with it, uh, you are able to to meet the expectations of, of your stakeholders. It's not easy, but it is not it is not as challenging as perhaps from a from an opening blank page I think, oh gonna be jolly hard. Um, it, it, it can be done. Again, there will be hiccups along the way. But that's where, you know, a good leadership team work together to ensure that whatever is troubling colleagues or parents or students can be easily
0: resolved. I'm afraid we're running out of time now. So one last question. Duncan, you've been involved in education all your life. You have a vast experience of what it's like to go through the education system. Do For our our listener, do you have any concrete advice or personal recommendations for either parents or students that could help them really get more out of the education? Choose
1: the right school. Choose the right school. Uh, We mentioned briefly, I I will be brief because we're coming to the end, but not all schools are the same and because not all students are the same and therefore find the school that meets your expectations that is able to that shares your philosophy and in which your child's going to be happy and it's uh it's it sounds trite but but a happy child someone who willingly comes to school who's enjoying his environment who's having a good time with friends who gets on well with their teachers
0: that is it is can be as simple as that but that's easy. It's easy to say, choose the right school. But for instance, my my children will be coming up to the age of secondary school soon, and we're we're going around looking at different schools. Um, what sort of things should parents be looking out for then, as far as choosing the right school goes? Because it's it's easy with hindsight, but but if you don't know the schools, then then what are the telltale signs? The students,
1: the students. I mean. They've... If you are you know, looking at schools, you know, there's not, no one's going to be a, uh, going to give you a, a truer reflection of the school than speaking to students. You know, for example, here we, we often have our students tour the school with prospective parents. So the thing is, you know, every school will market itself in exactly the same way. Maybe not these technology schools we we're talking about, but every school will tell you about personalized learning. Every school will highlight its pastoral care. Every school will tell you about its extracurricular program. Uh, most schools will be very keen to show you their exam results, as that being you know an aspiration you know, to, to, to aim for. So all those things are, are fairly standard. So you're right, how, how do I choose? If the information in front of me is equal, what are my factors that allow me to choose one school over another? And I think that is where the intangibles come in. Uh, you know how do you measure the feel for a school? How do you understand the ethos of the school beyond what is published and presented in front of you? And again, that is where visiting schools, talking to students, uh, just getting the feel of the place is is invaluable and I know we're ending, but I remember when I went to a couple of job interviews the most valuable lesson i got was not on my tour of the school by the deputy head or the information pack they they gave me before i applied to interview but was flying out the day before and just standing uh, a few steps across the road and just watching the morning drop off and the afternoon pick up and something as simple as seeing how students leave a school or how they walk into the school will give you a lot of information about that school. Touring a school, and again, I I will always play to my strengths, but when you see the the crossover from one lesson to the next will tell you an awful lot about the school, how the students interact with one another in the corridor, what's the member of staff doing who's on playground duty, you know, those are the things which you can't publish you can't put on the website you can't really photograph and use it as a marketing material but those are the things which will give you an absolute feel for is this the right fit for for my son or my daughter
0: great information thank you very much duncan i'm afraid we have to wrap up there so thank you very much for joining us i hope that your career in your homeschool continues to be a splendid one I look forward to keeping an eye on Kensington now and seeing how you are developing and continuing to produce excellent results and excellent students.
1: I will Google, sorry, I will Google Kensington, famous Kensington residents. <laughs> uh, if I've ever asked that question again, which I, I don't suppose I will. But no, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, head teachers love talking about their schools and education and I've enjoyed... Our hour and a bit together here. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Duncan. All the best. Take care.
1: Thank you.